Out in the field, the big, heavy-duty machinery revs up. A lone farmer sits inside the cockpit of this gigantic tractor. A puff of smoke trails out of the little exhaust pipe as the earth begins to churn beneath the steel blades. Nothing but time and the big blue sky as the tractor makes its way slowly across thousands of acres on the Arkansas farm. In the distance, though, there's one of those open-air canopies made of steel that house tools of the farmer's trade. Not just one tractor, but two. And there was a combine. So much heavy-duty, expensive equipment, all lined up like a little boy's toys. Now, you might be thinking that the farmer had been working this land with his family for generations, at least long enough to scrape together the kind of seed money required to purchase these top-shelf items. But this isn't that kind of story. All of that equipment, even some of the land, was paid for by a gold digger by the name of Shay Sanger, who had never worked an honest day in her life. Shay is the sister of this farmer, and if there's anything that runs through the generations of this family, it isn't working the land, but working people. And all that expensive farm equipment was paid for by a lonely man named Norman Butler. Norman lived all the way across the country in Washington State, a 75-year-old retired optometrist with no interest in farming. He'd been looking for love, as it turned out, in all the wrong places, on a Christian dating website. That's where he met Shay. By the way, Shay Sanger is just one of the names this grifter has cultivated over the years in her quest to prey upon vulnerable men. When somebody steals everything you have, you know, it doesn't matter if that's $100 or a million dollars, when they steal everything, it's just as brutal. But at the root of this middle-aged gold digger's black heart was the insatiable need for her family's approval. They always thought she was just this deadbeat. And all of a sudden, here's somebody who has the ability to buy hundreds of thousands of dollars in farm equipment for her brother. Will this woman get what's coming to her? I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Carolyn, you do such a good job of painting a picture with your scene setters, and I could totally see all this farm equipment out on the field revving up as you were describing it. And it reminded me of last summer when my son did an internship at Carnation Farms, which is in the Snoqualmie Valley. And I was talking with one of the farm leads that's there, and she was telling me about how important and expensive combines are. Well, I was getting a little bit in the weeds with all this farm equipment. I had pricing and everything because it does play such a huge part. I had no idea. I guess I've just never really thought about how much farm equipment is, but it is really expensive. Like you can buy a combine or you can buy a house. Yeah, right. Yes. And, and the thing about it is in the, in the Snoqualmie Valley last summer, I believe it was, there was an issue where a couple of farms combines broke down. And there isn't really anywhere you can go to get them repaired very quickly. And so they had like one combine in the entire valley. And all these farmers are trying to share the combine and see who can borrow it when. And everybody needs to harvest at the same time. So this equipment is not just really cool and fancy, but it is literally their livelihood. If that piece of equipment goes down you know, they could lose the farm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's what, um, as I was digging deeper into this story, and you know what, you're, where you live is like a piece of like heaven, a little, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about the farm, I'm still thinking about the mill that's going off at noon. <laughs> <laughs> I do love my little neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I'm glad that you have this, um, I'm glad that you have this expertise in farming because it does oh, play a role. Oh, I wouldn't say expertise, okay. but okay. <laughs> well, I didn't know what a cultivator was or an attachment to the cultivator that's called something else that I can't remember. But anyway, what you need to know is that there's this farmer had a lot of really, really expensive, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of really expensive farm equipment. And so to fully, though, get to the layers of this case, I really wanted to share who Norman Butler was. Like many victims of crime, he's not a name you'll know. And I want you to appreciate 
what he accomplished in his life. Firstly, he's of the class of American that was schooled in the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which means he worked hard for everything he got in his life. He was born into the Depression, and he was in a, a single-parent household, just him and his mother. So he had a financially a, a hard life. Now, that's Doug. That's his adult son. And Norman married the love of his life in 1946. And together, they had three children, two girls and a boy. And Doug says life wasn't always smooth sailing financially for the family as he grew up. In the newspaper business originally, he was a printer. He had a variety of failed businesses behind him. He'd take over a newspaper and run it till he went broke. And then he'd get a job for somebody, build up a little capital and try again. And he did that four times maybe. And then he had one that he finally made a go of. And uh, he sold that newspaper and he went to college and became an optometrist. And he did that when he was almost 50 years old. And then he practiced as an optometrist for about 20 years. And my mom finally harassed him into retiring when he was around 70 years old. And he moved up here to Washington to be with the grandkid. That's right. He went back to school at 50. I just love the story of who he is. I mean, all of that says so much about how hardworking he is, how much he just wanted to support his family and do whatever was necessary to to keep them afloat in difficult times. And I mean, just such a hardworking guy, it sounds like. Yeah. And he had a successful practice as an optometrist. Now, remember, that's not an eye doctor, but the kind that helps you get the right glasses. I looked it up and today the average salary for an optometrist is about 120000 And Doug says he had a successful business. And on top of that, he was a scrimper and a saver. He saved his money. He invested well. He didn't do anything terribly extravagant. He didn't spend money on anything unless he absolutely had to. As Loretta Lynn would say, they they were poor, but they had love. And that's something that Daddy made sure of. I had to throw that in because technically Norman wasn't a coal miner. But they had some tough times, and throughout it all, Norman was an amazing father. We can look back, you know, after we got grown up and say, yeah, there were times when money was really tight for us. But as a kid, we had no knowledge of that. I just love this this picture of this family. You know, and Norman grew up in the Depression, and his safety net was really small. It was just he and his mother. And like many kids of that generation, it was something they will never forget. So, Kim, as I was thinking about the Great Depression and how we've come to know that there are some traits that children who grew up during that time, you know, related to mental health impacts of living through such abject poverty. Now, remember, it wasn't just a financial calamity when the stock market crashed, but you also have that Dust Bowl catastrophe, a drought that decimated crops during the Great Depression. There's that image that comes to mind, the book Grapes of Wrath, um, that old vehicle loaded down with scraps of a family's belongings, kids wearing potato sacks, and, and nothing was thrown away because nobody had any money to buy anything. So according to the postconsumers.com, the quote, holding on to what you have philosophy was one of safety. Nobody knew when the depression would end or if it would get worse. The option to simply buy new things wasn't there. And most people wouldn't have survived if they hadn't learned to hoard possessions. And we now know that many of that generation and even subsequent generations hoarded because of the trauma experienced from living through that time. So I was thinking about, and I've thought about this so many times with my own kids thinking through living through this pandemic, you know, I've wondered, like so many parents, what will be the long-term mental health impacts on our kids living life under COVID and distant learning? Yeah, I actually look at it as an unexpected blessing. My children are at the age where they have started to spend more time away from home, less time with each other. And I'm kind of glad that in a way they're forced to spend more time at home with each other and their bonds, I can see their bonds are growing stronger. And I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And I mean, I feel the same way with my kids and then being closer with them, you know, mm-hmm. having so many kids, five, the oldest is 20, the youngest is seven. It's like we really have come together as a family and we were close before, but it's like you literally 
come to really lean on each other. The flip side of that, though, is it's been really hard to say, you know, to my kids, like, don't get close to people. You know, if, if somebody comes to the door, which is so rare these days, yeah. like, so like, does don't... that happen anymore? <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> like, don't answer the door. Hold on a second. You know, so you count your blessings. But there are going to be some some major effects that they'll have. But something positive to focus on, you know, during the Depression was studies that families became closer. And I think if that if you're lucky, that could be said for times today during COVID. Another important point is how important it is to endure the hardship without complaining in front of the kids. That's something that they did during the Depression. I don't know that I agree with that, to be honest with you, because I feel like it's not it's not truthful to not say this is hard. Yeah. This is difficult. This is not fun. And and to to help the kids realize it's not always going to be fun, but we can still be happy and we can still get through it together. If you don't show them that that raw side, that unhappiness, how are they ever going to learn that you've overcome it? That's true. I think I lo- I added that because I think when I look back when when Doug said that his parents never let them know how tough times really were. So they got that feeling of like, hey, you know, we have to work hard for everything that we have, but they're not so entrenched in like, oh my gosh, we're broke. We don't right. have, you know, where not it's the like, depths of despair. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, there's a fine line there. There's a fine line. So anyway, back to Norman. What an important point in the story that financially he hit his stride between his 50s and 70s. They lived very frugally, he made wise investments. And they moved to Ellensburg, which is in eastern Washington, and built a house right next door to Doug, their son, so that they could be closer to the grandson. And their investments really, really began to grow. So I've taken quite a bit of time to set this up because Norman was not born into a wealthy family and didn't receive an inheritance. But through hard work and saving, by the time he had retired, he had amassed a small fortune. At one time, it was worth three million dollars. Wow. Something to aspire to. Yeah. So Norman's wife passed away in 2004. But Norman at 75 still had plenty of life and love to give. So he went on a Christian dating site. And in 2005, he began exchanging emails with a woman named Shay Sanger. Seemed to be a, a very nice, personable lady. Said she had been widowed, didn't have any kids, had this nice Southern accent. She actually looked a lot like my mom, so Dad kind of really fell for her. And what was the age difference between the two? It's huge. She's a good 20, 22 years younger than my dad. So a few times, Shay would come over for dinner, and he says there weren't any red flags. When she came here, she stayed at Dad's house. We would get her and Dad to come to our house occasionally for dinner when she was here, but Shay really didn't like doing that. And, and what was she like when she would come to dinner? She was wonderful, bubbly and friendly and chatty, talked, you know, stuff. Saw no red flags there at all. So Doug and his two sisters were just so happy that their dad had found some romance in his life. And there's something else, though, you should know. Doug isn't exactly sure when it happened, but Norman began having some memory issues. His dad would forget little things. Yes, when we talked with my dad, we talked about common old stuff. Dad remembered old things. It was the brand new stuff that he didn't remember. So when he talked with Shay, everything with her was new. So his memory issues there uh, became very apparent to her right away. In fact, the family even reached out to Shay to help remind Norman to take his medication. That would help with his memory issues. Unfortunately, they didn't realize that was just giving Shay ammunition. Mm. He, he would ask occasionally about, you know, a picture like, you know, when was that picture taken? We wrote that off as, you know, he's getting old. You know, he's 75 years old. He's entitled to forget something every now and then. Uh, we had no idea how bad it was actually getting to be. That didn't show up until Shay was <laughs> well into him. So Doug believes Shay was actively encouraging his dad not to take the medication, but he says they didn't know that then. It wasn't until Doug was doing his dad's yearly taxes in 2010 that he made a horrible discovery. In the fiscal year of 2009, he found a single check to Shay for $97,000. And he's like, why? Why did you send it to Shay? And his dad answered, I don't know. The balance in his investment accounts was just so drastically depleted. And I started asking Dad about, where's your money at, Dad? And he was saying, oh, it's all there. It's all there someplace. 
<laughs> but it wasn't. And then I started going back to the brokerage, getting copies of all his monthly account statements and copies of checks he had written, went to his bank, and we got copies of all the checks he had written over the last several years. And that's when we found those tens thousand, sometimes hundred thousand dollar checks written to Shea. It took a long time just to believe it all. You know, I had all those checks. I could see that money going out, and I still couldn't quite wrap my head around that Dad was giving all this money away that he'd had. You know, and once we got some some evidence that all this money had gone to Shay, that's when we started talking to a, a lawyer. I can just imagine how difficult it is when there's this slow decline. And I don't think the person who is ill wants to recognize how ill they are. And I also think the family doesn't usually want to recognize that. I mean, I know that was a situation with my grandfather. When he started developing Alzheimer's and dementia, it was this years-long decline that started with forgetting where he put his keys to forgetting where photos were taken to forgetting younger family members, you know, new, new family members that were maybe a year too old, he would forget that they were had been born. But then over years, it got to the point where he became angry and violent. And I think that stemmed from the fact that that he was angry at what was happening to him. But, you know, he didn't really know how to express that. And so he lashed out at everyone around him, eventually had to be put in a assisted living facility and then in a hospital where he was physically lashing out at people and he became dangerous at the end of his life. And it was a really sad situation, but it was such a slow and steady decline. And it's like, where is that line where you have to say, you know, I don't think you're capable of managing your own life anymore? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that drew me to this story was, you know, my mother-in-law, who, I mean, she was like a mother to me, you know, had dementia. And it was one of the most difficult times in my life, watching her slow decline and being very close to it and seeing this woman who was the matriarch mm -hmm. of my husband's family. And she was this social worker and this, you know, fighter for justice for children. And to see that progression where it's true, like we're so used to her had control of the reins that it was hard to try to take those away from her. And she fought that Yep. Like, yeah. So so I, I can see why this family, they want to keep their esteemed loved one in that position where they've been their whole entire life. And while he at the same time, so hard to get to I that know. point. I mean, you don't want to take that away from him. He worked 70 years to get to that point. Yeah. So Norman did sign over control of his accounts to Doug. And so Doug finally got access to his dad's computer and was able, you know, to begin the process of peeling back the layers of, of what had been going on between Shay and his father, a trove of emails over the past five years that painted a pretty grim picture. Just five months after they met online, he started paying some of her bills. And their courtship was mostly online because Shay lived in Coopville, Washington, which is more than 300 miles away from Ellensburg. And Shay even used the distance between the two to manipulate Norman. Early on, she suggested that they move in together and possibly get married. But there was something that always stood in the way of that. Mm. She loved to dangle the carrot and then yank it away from Norman. A few examples, she would tell Norman she had to return to Tennessee to help her sick Uncle Jimbo, unless Norman put her name on his home and add her to his will because she, quote, needed security and something in writing so that she knows he loves her. And there were other dangling carrots that Norman's family had no idea were going on between the two, which included telling Norman her home had been broken into, she needed money to help um, Uncle Jimbo buy a new home, and the most obscene, that she had breast cancer. In one email, she said, quote, I have to come up with $125,000 for this operation, which will include the reconstruction of my breast, she wrote in a September 2009 email. I hate to ask, but is there any way you could help me with this? So he would send the money, and then she'd cash the checks written by Norman to her, but claim she never got the money to pay for the surgery. And she said, you know, sell some municipal bonds to get the money for the surgery today and I can get things in order to come over in there and, and live with you. You need me and I need you. So please do this. He had close to $3 million at one point. Shay's timing was terrible on this because uh, 2008 was when the economy was in sad shape. So a lot of dad's investments were worth a lot less than they had been. 
to get her cash, she sold them at depressed prices. That's how she got the two and a quarter million dollars, roughly. What was left after the end of that? There was around 400000 and she was trying to get the rest. I was able to put a stop payment on a few checks. Okay, so I don't know if you are picking up on the vibe that Doug appears to be a very mild-mannered son, but after he got to terms with the fact that Shay had swindled his dad out of his life savings, it was the equivalent of release the hounds. <laughs> Go, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> he got an attorney and he hired a private investigator, Rose Winquist, from Winquist Investigations. And to put it mildly, Shay had no idea the storm that was coming her way. And let me tell you a little bit about Rose. She is a dogged, no-nonsense investigator with decades of experience, and she's got a lion's heart. She has helped on a lot of cases in the Pacific Northwest, to mention a few, the Lindsey Baum case. She's worked with uh, Ann Bremner on the Susan Powell case. Speaking of which, Rose has had an incredibly upsetting update on the Powell case that I want to share at the end of the episode with you because it's pretty incredible. But Rose got the call from Doug about his dad. He called me and he said, hey, I want you to do a little background on this woman and find out who she is. And I said, okay, you know, what's the deal? And he told me and I went, oh my God, we need to, you know, we need to get rid of her. I've seen this so often that it's mind boggling. So Rose says, despite being a seasoned investigator, even she was shocked to find out the depths of depravity that Shay went to get money out of Norman. Just saying that she had cancer was the tip of the iceberg. She had more mastectomies than anybody I know. Oh, you know, no insurance. I don't have any insurance and I have to have a mastectomy and I have to, you know, my uncle's going to come to live with me and he's very sick and needs surgery and we have to pay for his surgery and I don't have any money and oh, I need a new, I mean, you name it. And he believed her. So on top of faking cancer, she would threaten to break up with him for someone else if he didn't keep doling out the money. And once Rose was on the case, she made a shocking discovery. And Rose got on board and within just a day or two, Rose called and told me that, yeah, Shay Sanger had a, a murder conviction back in Arkansas and spent seven years in prison on a, a murder two charge. I still have a hard time with some of this. I have to stop it here because this is one of the hardest things about doing a Zoom interview these days. You know, we have, we're so lucky to have that option to do, but we had to turn off our cameras uh, because the connection was unstable. And I didn't realize that that he was literally breaking down. And mm. it just was, you know, it's been how many years later, and it's still... Well, you can't go back and undo it. The harm that's been done, the damage that has been done to his father and his, his entire family by extension... It's done, and there is no way to go back and repair that. And that's that's a tragedy in and of itself. But, you know, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. I still think all dating websites should have an option for a background check on the person that you are agreeing to meet up with. It is just too easy for someone to pretend to be someone they're not these days. Yeah, but the one blessing in this, if you could call it a blessing, was that Norman didn't know what was happening. I interviewed him, and when I asked him, how much money he thought he'd given her. He said, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred bucks, hundred bucks, maybe here, there, not, you know, not very much. And I said, well, would it surprise you to know that you've given her close to $2 million? Oh no, that's not possible. So I think it was probably more than the Alzheimer's that was kicking in. And he just didn't remember giving her that kind of money at all. So one of the first things that they put into action was to get Shay away from Norman. We collectively go to all the police agencies and are routinely turned down. I'm sorry, we can't do anything. I'm sorry, we don't know what to do about this, you know. And it was kind of at a time when police were just beginning to be educated about elder abuse and what people can do and the courts were just putting into place what's called a VAPA action, which is a Vulnerable Adult Protection Act. It's an incredible tool in the state of Washington, and I'm sure other states, I haven't explored it, but that a family member, a neighbor, anyone can use who is concerned for a person who's vulnerable, who maybe lacks capacity 
to go to the court, fill out this document, serve it on the person that is being not only victimized, but the perpetrator of a crime, essentially, and it gets them out of the picture. They work very much like a protection order, like a domestic violence protection order. So I still have a minute going, but you're like shaking your head. It just makes me so annoyed at the way she's describing this because there are so many holes in it. And I know from friends who've had personal experience that it is not that simple. It does not work that well. And in most cases, it doesn't work at all because there are so many hurdles that you have to cross in order to get one of those VAPA orders. You have to prove that the person who is vulnerable has had a diagnosis from a medical professional who is licensed. You have to prove that the person who is taking advantage of them knows about that diagnosis. And you have to prove that there was intent to defraud the person after they knew about the diagnosis. I have a friend who went through something similar to this and proving that not only there was a doctor's diagnosis, but the person who was taking advantage of them knew about that doctor's diagnosis is incredibly difficult. So yes, there is this law in place and some people can use it, but it is not that simple. There are still people who are incredibly vulnerable because the law just isn't that great. Yeah. And back then it was even worse than what it is now. So let me play the rest of this cut and we'll see if Sorry. there's any. Oh, no, I love your passion because I think that's the thing that. It gives people a false sense of security to say, oh, now we have this law and we can stop it. It's like, well, no, well, no, 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 no. Well, and she wanted us. She goes, oh, you have to talk about this with your listeners so that your listeners can get educated if they've if they're experiencing this now or in the future, they're going to experience it. I mean, she really. I think it could help a lot of people, but I just don't think it's that 100% proof safety net. Well, and I got the feeling, although I didn't ask, I'm sure the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree in terms of being a saver. And so he had the pockets to basically hire the this amazing lawyer, Seattle lawyer. And then also Rose is an amazing investigator. A lot of people don't have anything, you know. Right. And so anyway, let's just play play the rest of it. For a period of two weeks so that you have an opportunity to do some discovery and figure out what they're doing, who's getting all this money and where's it going and who are the checks being written to and why is everything so depleted and what's going on and how come they're not being cared for and how are they scamming this person and what are they telling them? It gives you an opportunity to get the victim away from the perpetrator so that the perpetrator can't constantly be in their ear over and over again, isolating. And this is what they do. They isolate them from their family and friends. They get the locks changed on the house. They change their phone numbers. They do everything in their power to make sure that these people are so isolated, they don't know what end is up. Well, and that's what happened here too. Even though they lived, Doug lived right next door to his father, Shay was like whispering in his ear, don't tell your son anything. Just give me more money, but don't tell him. Erase these emails. Well, he probably didn't remember that to tell him anyways. Yeah. Another stunner, though, is during the, this two weeks that they got Shay away from Norman was that Rose found out that Shay wasn't even a widow. She was married to a man named Al Sanger. What? Still married? Yeah, who, who lived in a trailer park for 55 plus in Coopville. And that wasn't all. Turns out her name at the time when she married him was Sharon Miller. So then I looked up Sharon Miller and found another marriage license to a man by the name of Motley Miller. And, and her name when she married him was Sharon Lumpkin. So then I looked up the name Sharon Lumpkin and found all sorts of history in Arkansas. It's so funny when I said Lumpkin, you had this. I know someone with that last name and it seems like an unusual last name. So I'm, you know, you know me, I'm always like, hmm, in a relationship. Lumpkin. So as it turns out, there was a reason that Shay wanted to get as far away from her name, Sharon Lumpkin, as possible. Sharon Lumpkin was a huge, huge red flag that had a criminal history dating back to the 70s. And she, in fact, was in prison for nine to 15 years for murder. And that's why all the name changes were happening. She was hoping that nobody would figure out, you know, who she was. 
Rose said her investigation revealed more details surrounding that second-degree murder charge against Shea. So in 1987, Sharon Lumpkin was charged with killing Eugene Quarles Jr., who'd been dating her 16-year-old niece, Shannon. Now, during her trial, Shay claimed that her niece's boyfriend had attacked her when she asked him to return some money she'd loaned him. She said, quote, he knocked me down flat. He then straddled me and held me down and beat me in the face with his fists. So somehow I got my right hand in my pocket by miracle and I pulled out the knife I had in my pocket and I just went up with the knife. End quote. Now, Rose says she interviewed some folks related to the case that posited some other theories as to the motive for the murder. I think that she was just born a psychopath. She had an excuse for everything like, oh, well, this black guy was selling my niece drugs and I just had enough of it. And he pinned me on the ground and I was luckily I was able to get the knife out of my pocket. Well, first of all, who carries a knife in their pocket? I don't, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. some guys carry like a pocket knife, but not like a knife that can kill someone. And she stabbed this black guy and it wasn't just a little stab. It was like a, you know, it was a, it was a stab and a twist and the jury didn't buy it. You know, they didn't buy her version of what happened at all. You know, I could see someone as as selfish and angry and uncompassionate as she is killing someone over the color of their skin. I mean, that fits that mold. But I do have to push back a little bit on a couple of things she said. A, a pocket knife can kill someone. B, I carry a knife. I have never killed anyone. So the idea that you you don't carry a knife. Do you have the knife in your pocket? It's in my purse. I think that was her point that who carries a knife in their pocket? But if I didn't have my purse, I might put it in my pocket. I I just don't think that the fact that someone carries a knife is reason to assume they're going to want to kill somebody. I just let's just peel that onion back because no, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think for me, the. The story is that it goes back to this family dynamic, which we're going to get more to on Shay. And why would she kill her her niece's boyfriend? I mean, it just is is so who knows? I don't know. We don't have all the facts of the information and neither does Rose. But from the people that she talked to, you know, that was her impression. Mm-hmm. And so I just I find that Shay's or Sharon, you know, the family pulled at this. I I wish I knew more about that dynamic because it's going to get deeper into bizarro world as as we continue. So basically, after Shay got out of prison in 1995, she moved to Washington state. And within two weeks, she married a man named Motley Miller. She was 45 and he was 74. She took his last name. And then the following year, she legally changed her name to Shay. After Miller died, she then married this guy, Art Sanger. Now, Rose says when she interviewed her husband, Art Sanger, who was a veteran and was very feeble and ill, not only did she feel sorry for him, but the Butler family felt sorry for him because he was just he seemed to be another victim of Shay as well. So in December 2010, you know, speaking of that formal diagnosis, Norman was formally diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And let's go over the money timeline that Norman gave to Shay. So in 2005... He gave her over 113000 So it started before his diagnosis then? Oh, yeah. It so, started right away, right, it but, sounds like. So that VAPA law might not have done any good. Right. Back to your point of... of there has to be a formal diagnosis. Yes. Yes. And they, the family didn't even know any of this was going on. Yeah. So, so yeah. So in 2006, it was almost 170000 In 2007, 391000 2008, over 686000 In 2009, 849000 And that was each year she yeah. was getting that? So she yeah. just every year, more and more and more. More and more and more. Yeah. In less than five years, he'd given Shay most of his life savings, more than $2.2 million. Now, at this point, you might be wondering what Shay bought with this money, right? Doug says she bought the mobile home in Coopville, you know, that one for the 55 plus. She bought three or four cars and a truck. 
She filled the mobile home with furniture and electronics and upgraded the lighting and plumbing fixtures, and she made many trips back to Arkansas. On a couple of occasions, she would get back to Washington and then fly back south the next day, and then the rest of what she spent on herself was small stuff like clothing, rental cars, and phones. Now, here's the twist to the story that has just stumped me from the beginning. It's like, what did she do with the rest of that two-plus million dollars? So over that five-year period of bilking Norman, she sent more than $1.1 million to her brother, Mark Lumpkin, that wannabe farmer I was talking about in the beginning of the show, and his wife, Rosemary, roughly 195000 was given to Shay's niece, Shannon Wiggins. You know, that's the, the same niece who she killed her boyfriend. Mm. And Rose talks about some of these family members. What she did, which was so weird was she was writing checks to her brother who was a farmer in Arkansas for big machinery. I I think it was almost like she'd been such a loser her whole life and imprisoned for various things and running brothels and writing bad checks. And she'd been such a loser that she finally saw an opportunity to tell her brothers and sisters hey, look at me, I found a rich guy and he's given all this money and now I can help you. So she ended up buying all this expensive farm equipment and giving her sister you know, money to buy a house and you name it. I mean, it, it was just incredible. So Doug had to sue every single one of them. In the, in the interim, I tried calling every one of them and saying, look, you got all this money, you knew it wasn't hers. And it was stolen money from a poor old man with Alzheimer's. Give it back. And they all said no. And I said, you know what? You're going to be sorry. He's going to sue you. He's going to win. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose the farm. You're going to lose it all. And so did he win those cases? He did. Okay, because I was curious. I mean, if they weren't the ones who actually illegally got the money, would they be on the hook to return it? Yeah, because she represented herself as a widow, which she wasn't. So there were things that that were able to. But I could see him suing her, but to sue her family members who didn't actually commit a crime, it would seem. Yeah, this case, the, uh, the I think a Harvard Law student did a study on this case about what is the deal with these romantic gifts and, and all of that. And I didn't read the whole entire thing, but this case begs the question, like, how far back do you go? What, is, what do romantic gifts mean and how do you get them? But, you know, because there's sugar daddies that have been going on and sugar mamas that have been going on since the beginning of time. Right. You know, but I think that the way that she presented herself, she lied, basically. So but I wonder, too, if, if the family had spent this money buying combines and other expensive farm equipment, maybe they didn't have it to give back. Well, we'll get to that okay. in a minute. Another thing that kind of got me going about this story, too, is, of course, I, I believe generosity is an amazing thing. But in the context of this story, it's just sort of baffling. But then I started thinking about the downside of gifts and how they can be both weaponized Mm -hmm. and used to control, but also used to make one feel good about themselves, which is clearly the case with Shay. According to a piece in the New York Times, gift giving has long been a favorite subject for studies on human behavior with psychologists, anthropologists, and marketers all weighing in. So indeed, psychologists say it is often the giver rather than the recipient who reaps the biggest psychological gains from a gift. For thousands of years, some Native cultures have engaged in a complex ceremony that celebrates extreme gift giving. Often, the status of a given family in a clan or village was dictated not by who had the most possessions, but instead by who gave away the most. The more lavish and bankrupting the potlatch, the more prestige gained by the host family. Yeah, there's a culture, and I I wish I could remember, I can't off the top of my head which culture it is, but there's this idea that when you do a favor for someone or when you gift your time, your energy, or, or physical, you know, things, when you gift to someone, that person is doing you a favor. Because they're allowing you to rack up positive karma. Yeah. So so thank you for letting me give you this gift. Thank you for letting me rack up my karma. 
because in return now you need to do something to make up for the fact (laughs) that you have now lost a little bit of karma by taking something from someone. So in a way, it's like there's this opposite effect, right? So like, yes, I'm the one who's giving you something. But in the long term, when we're talking about existential values, Mm -hmm. I'm gaining something by giving you this gift and you are losing something by accepting it. So thank you for letting me give you this gift. Yeah. Part of my interest in this case, too, is going back to my mother-in-law who had the dementia. Like she taught me at an early age, what it is to give a gift. You give it just to give it. You don't give it to receive anything from someone. And actually, the ultimate gift is to just, like she told me this story, and it was a gift that she gave to me about when she was young, and she had this watch, and she was on this bus, and she grew up like dirt poor. And she ended up giving away this watch to this woman on this bus who didn't have anything. And I won't go into the whole thing about the story, but but her gift to me, she'd never told anyone that story. But she wanted me to understand about how when you give something to somebody, you give it without expectation. That is the freest way of giving a gift. And I just feel like in Shay's case, it's like she's getting something. It's so toxic, this family dynamic, but giving all these gifts, she's she's so desperate for their approval and their love. And you know, she didn't give a rip about Norman and his family. Mm-hmm. Another galling aspect in this case is not just the relatives and their refusal to give the money back, but Rose shares a story that she found out as she was doing her investigation. Look, I'm trying to be friendly here, right? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to help you understand what is going to happen. You know, this is going to happen. This man's going to sue you. She gave you money to buy the house. The check is written to you from his dad. (laughs) There is no dispute where you got this money. So, you know, it's like, where do you think this money came from? And he was kind of like, well, you know, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And, and, you know, you just take what you take. And she was willing to do it. So I did it. And, you know, I said, Chris... Sell, get, sell the house. Maybe you can even make some money off the house, you know, sell the house, but give the money back. Nope, wouldn't do it. And the same thing was true with a niece who she'd spent, she'd purchased her wedding and the niece, part of the money that she gave her, the niece gave a big chunk of it to a church that she belonged to. So I called the church and I said, hey, you know, I need to let you know that this woman has given you guys a bunch of money and this is a situation. And I went through the whole explanation about Alzheimer's and how she got the money and she was a thief and a murderer and she gave it to her niece and blah, blah, blah. And I said, so, you know, as a church, I'm sure you can understand that the right thing to do would be to give the money back to this family so they can care for their loved one. And (laughs) They said, no, no. Wow. Sorry. Yeah, right? And I was like, what? Apparently, the niece had embezzled $50,000 from that church, and Shay gave her the money to pay it back. So she wouldn't go. Wow. So she talk wouldn't about, go to prison. Talk about robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. So here's a report from Jason Peterson from KATV7. Shea Sanger's niece, Shannon Wiggins, works for the Hazen Police Department. But three years ago, Wiggins worked for Quapaw Quarter United Methodist Church in Little Rock. Then she got caught stealing. Wiggins was convicted of felony theft in order to repay the church about fifty thousand dollars. That proved to be no problem when two checks from Aunt Shay showed up. There were just wow, and she worked for the police department. Yeah, yeah. There were just too many galling offenses by this family to put them all in here. At the end of the day, Norman completely forgot about Shay Sanger and the money she stole from him. As for Shay, she was charged with a single count of mail fraud. She would self-address stamped envelopes to Norman, who would then ask his investor to cut checks in the amount that Shay requested, and then he would mail them to Shay. She also wrote letters to him through the mail asking for money. So I could understand then why why he would go directly after the family, because the money was sent directly to the family. It wasn't sent through Shay to them. 
Yeah, I mean, it was sent through her to them, but they had this huge paper trail of But it was checks. written out to them, to the family members. She was tried in federal court for mail fraud. Um, there was a couple of charges and was sentenced to five years in federal prison. And, you know, she in prison admitted to doing it and, you know, made some remark about how she loved him. And, you know, and the judge just said, oh, baloney, you took advantage of him. I like how she's like, oh, baloney. Yeah, love that judge. Yeah, so fortunately, Doug says Norman had a nice life in an assisted living facility and passed away in 2019. So you might be wondering where Shay is now. We kind of follow her from time to time just because. And she went to this halfway house somewhere in Oregon, and she's definitely mentally unstable. And the people that, that she was rooming with called the police because she caused a big fracas in this. It was like a group home, I think. And she caused a big fracas in the group home and told them she was going to, she used a term like, I'm going I'm to take a knife and I'm going to slit your belly and I'm going to gut you like a salmon. So they called the police. And of course, she went back to prison for violating her probation for a period of time. And then she got out again. And right now, I think she's living somewhere on Capitol Hill. That was the last known address I had for her. So she could be out there looking for more love online. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's, scary. And that's why they kind of keep tabs on her because they're worried that she, you know, even though she's getting older, you know, she has a penchant for older men and... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put anything past her at this point. She's murdered people. She's swindled people. She was willing to do anything. Well, and from what they learned, she hasn't worked an honest day in her life. And so what they did, what was cool, though, is that, you know, Art Sanger, who was her, the husband that she was married to while she was, you know, pretending to be a widow with Mm -hmm. uh, Norman, they saw him as such a victim that they helped him get a divorce from her so that she couldn't go after his pension because he was a veteran. And on top of that, they worked out a deal where he could continue living in the, um, in the mobile home at the 55 plus place until he passed away and let him keep the truck. And then he agreed to sign it over to them when, when he died, which, which he did. Wow. Did they have any children? No, she didn't have well, any thank children. God, yeah. maybe the family lineage is going to end there. Well, I mean, her she has nieces and nephews from her siblings, but she doesn't have any children. So as for Doug, he says going after Shay and her family was a full-time job, but he was motivated by one thing. We wanted to recover the money because we needed money to take care of dad. And uh, part of it was somebody just needed to be held accountable for what happened. And do you feel like you did? I did more than anybody has done. Uh, Shea Sanger, from when she was a teenager, she ran a variety of illegal enterprises and gave money to the rest of her family. And her family was always happy to take cash from Shay, and they never seemed to care where it came from or how she got it. And one of the things that I feel good about is this time around, I was able to make her family (laughs) bear some responsibility for taking all those illegal funds from Shay. And I felt pretty good about spreading that, (laughs) spreading that around and holding them all accountable to some degree. So as a result, two of the relatives filed for bankruptcy. Her two sisters lost their homes and apparently the niece lost her home as well. Whatever happened to the combine? They, They had a huge auction. Oh, so they did Um, sell off the equipment. Oh, yeah. They sold off everything that they could get. I mean, he was like dogged um, in the pursuit. He ended up getting um, about a million dollars back, and it cost them like $500,000 in legal fees going after. So I think they got over a million, and then it ended up being about a million dollars after the legal fees. So when Norman passed away, there was some money left to give to Doug and his sisters, and Doug donated all of that to a charity. Do we know about Shay's family history as far as 
why she was the way that she was? Like, did her parents have a criminal history? Do we know anything about all that? You know, I that's what I kept trying. Because, like, Doug actually has a website of all the things that he's, you know, all of the court cases and everything. He's documented it. And I and and of course, my my question to him was like and also rose like what who are these people well when the whole where, family, the whole is family. So rotten, you gotta yeah, wonder yeah. where that comes from yeah no they didn't they they didn't have specifics okay so i want to take a turn to talk about an update on the susan powell case just as a reminder where we left off in this super complicated series of crimes and investigations and court trials and deaths that have happened. You know, Susan Powell was a mother of two, married to Josh Powell. She went missing, is presumed dead. Josh Powell was a person of interest in her murder since it happened, but was never actually charged with anything. Um, his his boys, his two sons, Charlie and Braden, were taken away from him by the state. They were in CPS custody, and he was uh, on a visitation with them when he murdered his own children in his home. And so there was a lawsuit brought against the state of Washington for failing to protect those two boys when they knew that they could be in danger when they were with their father. And they shouldn't have been in his home in the first place based on the rules that the state had put into place when there are these kind of domestic violence allegations against someone there needs to be supervised visitation it shouldn't have happened in josh's home it should have happened at a neutral location so the grandparents of charlie and Braden about six weeks ago were awarded 98 million dollars for the mistakes that the state made and so recently a judge went back and reversed that what? decision. Now, Rose Completely is... Completely reversed. Well, this is what... N- n- substantially. So okay. Rose has been helping that family on the case. And here's what she had to say. Oh, man, the jury is so pissed at that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to expedite an appeal, which will go to the Supreme Court in about six... We should have a decision in six to eight months. He didn't have the right to... Cut that verdict by two thirds. That is heartbreaking yeah. because that $98 million was a record setting award in this kind of case against the state. And, and you know, the Cox family was so happy to get that because it made a statement and it made a strong statement, not just for the state of Washington, but for the entire country that we need to do a better job of protecting our kids, of making sure that those children who are in a situation where there has been domestic violence, get extra protections to make sure that they are safe. Yeah. And I think that the judge's comment was something to the effect that the jury was super emotional and they made that judgment. And it's like, well, no, yeah, that they were super emotional. Two little boys were murdered. Yeah. But that <laughs> that is not his place to yeah. do that. They made that jury. And, and anybody who's followed this case, I mean, They weren't acting emotionally. That should have never happened. But here's the thing. There is a reason we don't have robots deciding cases. We don't have AI going in there making these decisions. We want human beings, emotional, thoughtful people who can not only consider the rule of law, but also the emotional impact on the victims. It matters. And to sit there and say, well, you were being emotional. Okay, and? Yeah. It matters. Yeah. And, and a jury's verdict should matter. Yeah. So friends, friends of the podcast, friends of Scene of the Crime, we would just love it so much if you would go and give us a review on iTunes, hopefully a five-star one. And <laughs> also tell your friends and subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on our website. At- and Carolyn, wait, wait, wait. I have some big news to share with you. What? We have now surpassed 100,000 downloads. Yay! So we're, we're doing really well. We appreciate all the support. And just please, I hope if you're enjoying the podcast, you'll continue to join us every week and, and yeah, share with your friends. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much. We appreciate you so much. And obviously, you appreciate us. 100,000 downloads. Let's keep this going. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard. And this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>